Thanks, Ken, and thanks again for the opportunity to be with you all today. Uh, it was good to see, for me to see some familiar faces from Monty, and I know that one of the great things about what, we, what churches are doing with live stream is it does help us to feel connected not only to God but to one another, uh, even though we can't see each other. Now, I just want to allay Josh's very real fears about uh, today's message uh, because, yes, it is true. I, I did change the, the, the topic. Um, I had a really interesting experience in preparing for this because, actually, this is a passage I've never spoken on before, one that I've read many times but never spoken on before. And um, the title of this passage that I was given, the person who designed this, so I don't think was Josh, was Behold the Servant, which comes from verse 1 of the chapter where in my NIV version it says, Here is my servant, because this introduces the servant of the Lord. Um, but I, I got thinking about this. I could do a, a, a nice theological message, and you would all say, Well, that's a really good theological message. I, I understand that, and that makes sense. But I got asking myself, Why is this here? Why is this prophecy here at this time? And it's the, the context, in a way, that gives this prophecy life and the introduction of the servant meaning. And so there is the response to the introduction of the servant in verse 10, where it says, sing to the Lord a new song. So we have the introduction of the servant in a difficult circumstance and the response of God's people. And one of the things that I always like to do with sermon titles is to Try and think of a verb that describes the action that I'm hoping will be an outcome of the message. So I'm hoping that each of us, as we listen to this message today, as God speaks to your heart, as he speaks to my heart again, that we would trust God more. And particularly in the circumstance in which we find ourselves at this time. So I've called it trusting God in a crisis. And what I want to do is I want to look at the content and the 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 uh, the context of these verses. So let's think of all, first of all, about the, the context. Uh, we know that in, if we go back to chapter 41, we read there about how God called Israel and made him or them, the nation, his servant. And that's a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. But they had turned away to idols and they'd followed spiritually bankrupt leaders. So they were following idols, their leaders were following idols, and so they followed their leaders in that. And of course, in chapter 36 through 39, we read about how exile was a consequence of that. And um, Isaiah there talks about the the uh, capture of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians, and he talks about what is pending uh, after they welcomed, after Hezekiah welcomed the visit of the Babylonians. He talks about what's pending for them uh, as a result. And, of course, by the time we get to chapter 40, um, Israel, the, Judah, that um, Isaiah speaks about, many of those people have been taken off to exile in Babylon. A lot of the book of Isaiah covers um, the pre-period part of that. Now, in this section of the book, we're into the section that deals with the exile. But you'll notice there from the little graphic that I've got on the screen that I've put an arrow that goes on because, really, often in prophecies, what you have, you have a kind of an immediate application, um, a longer-term application, and a long-range application. And certainly this is one of those passages today that has a long-range application as well as an immediate application for the people there. 
So the context is one of crisis. The content is about hope. And it's about hope in the servant that's to come. He says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. The question is, who is the servant? Well, we know that Israel was God's servant. We already talked about that. Israel was appointed to be God's servant. But clearly this is not talking about Israel because it describes this servant as the one who is faithful, who will bring forth justice, who won't falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. Now we know that Israel was, like all of us in our humanity, Israel was a waverer. Jesus was never a waverer. It's not, therefore it's not talking about Jesus here. Is it possible that it's talking about Cyrus, the Persian king, emperor, who would ultimately see exiles return? Uh, back to Israel. Uh, if we just talk about Isaiah, uh, Cyrus for a moment, uh, in chapter 41 we read about Cyrus. Um, he's described as being from, well, he's not named actually. He's described as being from the east and the north. And then there are other passages there, you can check out those references later, uh, other passages where he's specifically named a long time before he even comes on the scene. He's described as being from the east and the north because he came from Mesopotamia, which is to the east, but of course entry into Israel is always from the north. So we might say that Cyrus was from the northeast. Uh, but it's not referring to Cyrus because Cyrus was a harsh ruler, a ruler who subdued people by force. Uh, but this servant that we read about in Isaiah chapter 42 is not one who's harsh. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In other words, he's not going to oppress people, whereas Cyrus, as a human emperor, oppressed people. Now, of course, there's this kind of view that um, the servant will bring justice to the nations. You know, um, Cyrus, human emperors have limited scope, no matter how much of the world they uh, conquer. But this servant will bring justice to the entire world. The only conclusion that we can really draw from this is that it's really speaking in the long-term sense about Jesus Christ as the ultimate fulfilment of this, as the Messiah. In fact, um, Matthew observed that when Jesus performed a miracle and told people not to um, speak about his miracles and say what he'd done... Matthew says the fact that Jesus warned them not to tell others about him was to fulfill this very passage. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here's my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he'll proclaim justice to the nations. He'll not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he'll not break and a smouldering wick he'll not snuff out till he's brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. So here we see the New Testament saying that this Isaiah passage was about Jesus. Do we have any other evidence, any other parallels that might indicate that this is Jesus? Well, if we think about this servant character that's talked about in Isaiah 42, that says that he's the one that I've chosen and the one that I've sent, 
the one who I'm delighted in. And of course we know that Jesus Christ was the Messiah who pleased God at his baptism and at the transfiguration. We have the voice of God saying that this is the one I love. Listen to him. But we have in Isaiah 42 the fact that this servant is empowered by the Spirit. And we see Jesus when he was baptised, having the Holy Spirit coming down upon him and being empowered by the Spirit of God. In fact, when Peter talks about the works of Jesus Christ in Acts 2 and 22, he says that Jesus Christ was a man accredited to you by signs and wonders which God did through him. So God's Spirit was working through Jesus Christ. He was empowered by God to do the works that he did. But here we also see this this kind of humble character uh, in this passage, you know, someone who's not going to announce himself, not one who's going to shout out in the streets and make a big deal about himself like the religious leaders of Jesus' day were inclined to do. Rather, we see in Jesus one who used his position for the sake of others. If you think about Philippians chapter 2, where it tells us that Jesus Christ was in very nature God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be hung on to, but he made himself nothing. And taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And why did he do that? He did that for the sake of others. He didn't do it to draw attention to himself. He did it so that we could know God, so that we could have a relationship with God, which we've thought about as we took the communion today. But also we see a gentleness here. You know, this idea of not uh, breaking a bruised reed or snuffing out a, a candle with, that's just smouldering. So, you know, people who are on the edge, people who are almost broken, people who are almost uh, they're down and out, those kind of people, this person won't crush. And we see in the whole New Testament, Jesus treating people well, Jesus lifting people up, Jesus including the excluded, Jesus forgiving those who are condemned. Jesus healing people who are regarded as sinners. There's that great story in, in Luke 15 where Jesus eats at um, eats with sinners. He's criticised that he eats with sinners and he tells that great those three great stories, those three great parables to illustrate that God cares for the people who are lost. This was Jesus who reached out to lost people and included them. And we see in Jesus amongst those who are the most broken in their society, Jesus is loving and kind towards them. This is the character of the servant that we read about in Isaiah 42. We see here a a reliability um, in in this servant. In verse 3 it says, In faithfulness he will bring forth judgment. In faithfulness. So here it says he won't falter or be discouraged. So he carries out God's plan. We read in Hebrews chapter 3 that Jesus Christ was faithful as a son over God's house. You see, he persisted, he persevered for our sake. He won't, he won't stop or discourage until he establishes justice on the earth. We read about Jesus Christ in Hebrews 12, that who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despising its shame, sat down at the right hand of God. And then the writer of the Hebrews says that we should take encouragement from that. We should consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we won't grow weary or lose heart. So here we see the characteristics of Jesus Christ matching up with the characteristics 
of this servant in Isaiah 42. But then also we have the effectiveness of this servant. You know, we read in this passage three times in verses 1 through 4, it talks about how this servant will bring justice to the nations. You know, often we interpret justice personally. You know, something's bad is done to me, or I, I think it's bad, and therefore I feel I've been treated unjustly. This is not talking about this kind of justice. This is talking about a situation in which uh, God's perfect justice prevails. This is really talking about a kingdom rule. And when I think about Jesus Christ, I think about how he, he came to proclaim, to announce that the kingdom of God is come. And he said, the kingdom of God is among you. And of course, ultimately, it will be Jesus Christ who will rule in perfection over all the earth and the world will be a just place and a fair place completely. You know, now we have parts of that story. Ultimately, we will have that story completed in Jesus Christ. We're told here that this person was to be a covenant for the Jews. In verse 6, he says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I'll take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people. So really this was saying that the covenant is going to be wrapped up in this person. Now, to the Jewish mind, understandably, the covenant went back to Abraham and his family and it's quite understandable that they thought that way because that was the way that it was pictured. But here, this says, um, my covenant is going to be in this person. You know, in John chapter 1, when John introduces Jesus as the one who came from God, the one who is the light, the one who is the life, the one who is revealing God to us, the one who comes as God to live in human form. Uh, he says that those who received him, Jesus gave the right to become children of God. He says, children born not of natural ascent or of a husband's will, but born of God. In other words, you're no longer right with God because you are born an Israelite. There's a new basis for salvation here. And that basis is Jesus Christ. And this passage is foreshadowing that reality. Now we know that Israel was meant to be a light for the Gentiles. And Israel failed miserably, failed miserably to do that. In fact, Paul says in Romans that God's name was blasphemed amongst the nations because of some of their behaviour. But here... This servant will be a light to the Gentiles. And we see in Jesus Christ the whole inclusion of outsiders. We see that in stories throughout the, New T- uh, throughout the Gospels. Uh, the Roman centurion, the Samaritan lady, uh, even, even in a sense Zacchaeus, who is not an outsider in the Gentile sense, but in terms of a collaborator. So here we see Jesus bringing light to people who wouldn't have had light, who wouldn't be expected to have light. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 2 that Jesus Christ has broken down through his death on the cross, the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. He's a light for the Gentiles. And he's going to be one who cures spiritual blindness. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who are in darkness. And so we see Jesus Christ bringing spiritual light to the world. 
In John 8 and 9, there's that wonderful story of Jesus healing the man who was born blind. And he does a, a physical healing of a man's blindness to illustrate that he can also cure spiritual blindness. And he says, I am the light of the world. We've heard this morning that he's the good shepherd. He's also the light of the world. This passage here prefigures what Jesus would do in that way. And this person sets the blind and the captive and the prisoners free. And of course we read in Ephesians 2 about how though we were entrapped by Satan, Jesus Christ has set people spiritually free. So Jesus lines up in terms of what the New Testament says about this passage being a fulfilment of him. It lines up in terms of what we read about Jesus in terms of his characteristics, his character, his nature, but also in terms of his effectiveness. And so this passage invites us to to hope in the Messiah. It invites those people to hope in the one who is coming. It invites us now to hope in the one who has come. But also it invites us to hope in God. Because it's God who sends this one as his messenger. God who sends this one as his servant. And he says in verse 13, that he's the one who's going to be victorious. He's the one who's going to win. You know, I will lay waste the mountains and hills and drive their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands. I'll drive the pools. I'll lead the blind by ways they've not known. I will turn darkness into light. These are the things that I will do. So really in sending this messenger, excuse me a moment, I just need to have a sip of my water. In sending this messenger, God is saying, trust me. Trust me as the victorious one. But trust me as the one who is working, even though you can't see me at work. He says in verse 14, For a long time I've kept silent. I've kept quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp and I pant. Now the idea here is that, and we've heard about somebody having a baby this week, which is always wonderful news, there's a long period of waiting, isn't there? And it builds up to that moment. And just at the right time, when the baby is ready, when the mother is ready, the baby is born. And it's this same kind of idea here, that God is at work in the background. Something is growing, something is developing, and just at the right time, God will work. And he will do all of these things. At that moment, he will triumph over his enemies, as we read about in verse 13. So we're invited here to hope in God and to trust him that he will make everything right. He says in verse 16, these are the things that I will do. I will not forsake them. So here the messenger is coming and in sending the messenger God will do these things. So the content is content about hope. But there's really a challenge that's inherent in this. Because you see these people are now in captivity. They're now in Babylon. They're in trouble. They're away from their country. There's no more sacrifice. There's no more temple. 
So in times of trouble, who or what are you going to trust? And it's interesting that in verse 17 of this passage, he says, but to those who trust in idols, who say to images, you're our gods, you'll be turned back in utter shame. And I think that while this is a a message to those who are going to be defeated, there's also a message to Israel in exile here. Because one of the things that led them into exile was the turning away from God to trusting in other things. And one of the questions we always must ask ourselves in times of trouble, where am I going to put my trust? Where am I going to put my security? We had that wonderful illustration this morning of the bungee jump cord. Who are you going to trust is a relevant question. So in captivity, who are they trusting? Now we know that one of the things that happened while they were in captivity was that the the scribal group of people became much more prominent and important in in, uh, their community because all they had was the law. And so they became people of the law. And you know, it's interesting because it's possible to trust in the law, but not trust in the Lord. Or to trust in your identity as Israel and not trust in the Lord. Very significant. I got thinking about, well, what does that mean for me now? What does that mean for us now? Because in a sense, we're in captivity. I'm doing something I've never done before. I've used Zoom a lot and we do Zoom training to Africa and so on, but I've never Zoomed to a church's live stream before and been sent out on YouTube. This is something, and I appreciate Andrew for all the work that he does in the background on that. Like you, I'm confined to my home. I would much rather be at the church with you today. I'm thankful that we have what we have, but that's where I'd rather be. So we're all in captivity, you know, not able to go more than five kilometres from our home uh, unless for specific kind of reasons. So we're in captivity, in a sense, to the pandemic. Our government has made rules to protect us because of the pandemic. We may be captive to it in our minds. What will happen to me? Will I get sick? If I get sick, will I get better? Uh, My business, will my business survive during this time? There are all those kinds of questions that kick into, into play at times like this. We're not in the same circumstance that the people then were, but the circumstance is similar in that we're away from what is familiar. We're unable to do the things that we want to do and we're unable to do the things that we have always done. And so I think the question for you and me is the same as it was for them. In our captivity, who am I trusting? In my trouble, who am I trusting in? I think this passage invites us to trust despite the circumstance. See, in verse 10, he says here, Sing to the Lord a new song. Now, because God is doing this, we can sing. So there's this idea of salvation. And for them, salvation was coming in this person. For us, we don't look forward, we look back. Oh, well, sorry, let me go again. 
We don't look forward to the first coming of the Messiah. We look forward to the second coming of the Messiah. So we have salvation now and we look towards the future when Jesus Christ will come again. You know, when, when Paul reflected on the scope of history as he understood it with God's dealings with Israel, he responded with a song. And his song was, Oh, the depths of the riches and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the Lord's mind or who's been his counsellor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay them for from him and through him and for him are all things to be to God be the glory forever. Amen. So despite our circumstance, we can rejoice in the certainty of salvation. Are you saved? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know God as your heavenly father? Nothing changes that. A captivity doesn't change that. A pandemic doesn't change that. An illness doesn't change that. A job loss doesn't change that. Trouble in your family does not change the fact that Jesus Christ, that God through Jesus Christ has saved you through his work on the cross and through your faith in him. But then you see, we have to, we actually have to put our faith in that, if that makes sense. And sometimes in our circumstance, God seems silent. And God actually says here, for those people for a long time, I've kept silent. And, and in a sense, God was silent for them through all of their captivity. Nothing happened. And I can imagine them wondering and waiting and watching, when is this servant coming? When will that be? And I wonder who they thought it would be. You know, I don't think it's any surprise that by the time of Jesus there's a lot of messianic ferment with somebody saying, I'm the one, I'm the one, and people are looking for this. I think that quite possibly when Zerubbabel went back and they started rebuilding the temple, maybe they thought it was him. When Ezra went back, maybe they thought it was him. When Nehemiah went back, maybe they thought it was him. Well, no, it wasn't. You see, in the silence, we're struggling to say, is God still there? Is God at work? When God seems silent, is God still working or not? Well, God says he is. And just at the right time, God will do what he's going to do. You know, in Romans 8, Paul talks about how God is always at work, working for our good. And we often think of that in terms of God working good stuff out for us. That's not what God says. God says he's working so that we might be more like Jesus Christ. That's God's good for us. And he talks about uh, how God has saved us. How Jesus Christ is over everything. How we face difficulty and trouble. He says here, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he says, no, in all these things, in everything that we face, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is always at work in our difficulty. God is always at work in us in our difficulty. God is always there. God has not forsaken us. We can trust him in the silence. Maybe you're wondering today, where is God? God seems silent. When will this pandemic end? When will my circumstances change? 
This is too much for me. God is still God. God is still there. God is at work and we're called to have faith in the silence. And in that, to trust God, not ourselves. You know, I think during times like this, we look for self-solutions. You know, if you read those passages in the earlier parts of Isaiah, the, the people were trying to do deals with their would-be oppressors so that they they might be they might stave off the captivity and the trouble that was to come. They talked to idols to try to stave off the captivity that was to come. These were all solutions that they were looking for. And even today, in our circumstances, we look for solutions, don't we? We, we have belief systems by which we try and stave off the worst of things. You know, if I'm a Christian, this can't and won't happen to me. We think that will do. Or we think if we have the vaccine, that will do. And some people even think if we don't have the vaccine, that will do. If we trust the government, that will do. Or if we don't trust the government, that will do. All of these are belief systems whereby we're trying to make sense of the world and trying to protect ourselves. But in their own way, all of them in their own way, are self-solutions. Now, I don't mean that we shouldn't do anything. I don't mean that if we, if we, if God provides us with a vaccine, we shouldn't use it. I don't mean that for a minute. Uh, Being vaccinated, uh, but I am asking the question of where we actually put our overarching trust. You know, Jesus said that really we needn't worry about our life, about our physical being, our food and our clothes. He asked the question, how can it any of us worrying at a single hour to our life. He talks about the flower, flowers of the field in the same way. And he asks, won't God clothe them, you of little faith? And then he asks us to, to not to worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I know a lot about this topic because I've worried a lot in my life. And I can tell you, worry has not changed one thing. And far from worrying adding to my health and well-being, worrying has taken away from my health being, my well-being. So what is this telling me? For everything in life, I need to trust God and put the priorities of his kingdom first. So in crisis times, what did Isaiah ask them to do? And what is this saying to us? Well, it's really saying that I should be focusing on a God who is unchanging. A God who is sovereign, a God who is the winner, and none of my circumstances change that reality. And I should focus on what God has done for me. Done for me in salvation. Done throughout my life. I should recount my blessings, as we're told in Psalm 103, because when I recount my blessings, it builds up a reservoir of faith. It's so easy in the difficult time to look at the difficulty and forget the good that God has done. But I should focus on what God has done for me. And then I should focus 
not on the not on the uncertainty that I'm facing, but on the reality of what is to come. I'd like to conclude with a story in 1980, sorry, 1988, a long time ago now. I did a was on a mission team that went to Papua New Guinea, and I had to fly to uh, 11 flights in six seater aircraft. Uh, 11 times over a period of 21 days. And I was afraid of doing so. I, I didn't like flying. I'm still not keen on flying. Uh, but I was genuinely afraid. And I had to go through a process of working out why I was afraid. Uh, I was a young father with a young family. I wasn't afraid of dying. I knew if I died, I'd go to be with the Lord. I didn't want to die, but I wasn't afraid of dying. So that was not the cause of my fear. And I figured out there were two things. Um, the first was that I was afraid of dying and leaving my family uncared for. And secondly, I was afraid of not being in control. And you see, when we're in crisis, we're not in control. And it's hard not to be in control sometimes. And I struggled to let go of that. And I came to a point in my life where I had to ask myself the question, okay, Peter, you're not afraid of dying, but you're afraid of dying and leaving your family uncared for. Are you willing to trust God that if you were to die, that he could care for your family? And so for me, it came not to be a Christ, not not a concern about who was in control of the airplane, but could I trust God to care for my family in my absence or not? And once I decided in my heart, yes. Once I decided in my heart, I could accept the worst outcome and trust God anyway. That changed everything in my attitude. So we need to focus not on our uncertainties, but on the reality of who God is and what God can do. May God help me to do that every day. May God help you to do that every day. And may during this crisis of pandemic that we're going through, may we all know God in a tangible, experiential way more, ministering to our heart in these things. And in the midst of knowing God's servant, may we be able to rejoice even though we're in a time of crisis. Let me pray for us as we conclude. We thank you, Lord, for your eternal grace and mercy to us. Thank you for this passage written so long ago that spoke to the people then, but also speaks to us today. Thank you that your word is living and active, and it's remained so for centuries. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who ministers to us. And I pray that he would continue to minister to us and help us to focus our eyes on the servant, on Jesus Christ, and our hope in you. Help us, Lord, to lift our eyes just from our circumstances and to lift our eyes to you and to find our hope, our strength, our purpose, our security in you. Thank you for the promise of your word that you will never leave us or forsake us, that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ. To you, our Father, 
be all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you in your week and uh, look forward to catching up with some of you in the virtual morning tea afterwards.